0: good morning again. I'm going to pray, open and pray one more time, asking the Lord that he would do a good work through this preaching of his word. Lord God, we thank you that you are the one that changes hearts, that changes minds, that changes lives. I thank you, Lord, for the reminder that I am an imperfect and a weak vessel, and we pray, Lord, that you would uphold me today as I proclaim your word. Please give my voice strength to declare your truths, and may it be audible, may it be received well, may it be heard, not just with physical ears, but with spiritual ears to hear and apply what your Spirit is saying to the church today. We ask, Lord, that we would be transformed by the message and that we would indeed love Jesus more because of it, and that we would be more like him because of it. We pray this in the precious name of your Son. Amen. Each of us hold different places of significance to different people. For example, I am one person, but to Ashley, <clears throat> I am a husband. To Scotty and Sherry, I am their child. To my kids, I am a father. To Gideon, I am a boss. To you, I am your pastor. To the U.S. government, I am a citizen. And of course, to Taco Bell, I am a customer. <clears throat> I relate to each one of these people or these groups differently. However, the way that I relate to them is defined or summarized by the simple title that is used. So these descriptive positions, such as husband or father or child, they are used to explain the expectations and responsibilities that I have toward the people with whom I am connected. We already talked a little bit this morning about God as our father and we as his child. But today what we're going to do in this time is examine the threefold offices of Christ. The Bible presents us with three archetypes, three offices given to people all throughout the Bible, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And our time together this morning is going to focus on how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of each one of these offices. He is the great prophet, he is the high priest, and he indeed is the king of kings. And as we will see from Scripture, there can be no debate, as he is objectively the chief officer in each of these roles. So before we dive in, I want to just give a little bit of insight as to why I have chosen to preach on this particular aspect of Scripture today. There are many reasons, but I'll offer three this morning. First, because understanding these paradigms can go a long way in helping you understand the way the Bible all fits together. Grasping the concept of God's purpose in designing Hebrew society in this threefold way helps us to understand how the people of God in the Old Testament were supposed to live. And more importantly, it reveals to you how Christ is the great fulfillment of all that came before him. Secondly, we're going to be covering the end portion of Isaiah this summer, chapter 54 all the way through 66. And when we do that, this information about the prophet, priest, and king will genuinely assist you in understanding what these prophecies are all about as we see Isaiah pointing forward to a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Third, knowing Christ rightly necessarily helps to show us how to live. Theology is genuinely and always necessarily practical. Seeing Jesus in these ways helps us to see what he desires from us. Just like I said before, if I am a father to someone, that means I have particular responsibilities that I have toward them. If I go to the park and I see children misbehaving that are not my children, I have no right or responsibility to discipline those children. In fact, that would be problematic if I did that to them. And I would never do that because they are not my children. You act in the way that you act because you have a relationship that is a particular form of relationship with them. And as we see that Christ is our prophet, he is our priest, he is our king, that affects the way that we act. We see how we are to relate. We see our roles and expectations and responsibilities so we know how to live. So our outline for this morning will simply be the three points, prophet, priest, and king. And for each one of those, we're just going to ask four simple questions ...to understand what these have to do with us. First, what is it? Second, how does this role operate in the Old Testament? Third, how does Jesus serve in this role? And finally, what does it mean for you? So let's begin with the office of the prophet. So what is a prophet? Well, simply put, a prophet is a person that God would select to speak to the people on his behalf... Sometimes he would speak to them about the past. Sometimes he would reveal the future. But the key is not simply about prophetic future telling. What makes somebody a prophet is that he would reveal to them his will, and they would speak on behalf of God. God's pattern of communication has always been to speak through personal mouthpieces. So how did the prophets operate in the Old Testament then? The main phrase that is associated with prophets in the Old Testament is the phrase, thus says the Lord. In fact, that little phrase, or some variation of it, is used over 500 times in the Old Testament. It was a reminder to everyone that when they hear these words, they're not being made up by the mind of a prophet. These words are simply being mediated through that mouth. They are being presented to you from the Master, from God on high. These are just the messengers. These words are from Almighty God. So the various prophets served in different ways. Some were advisors to kings of Israel like Nathan or David. Some were common workers that God selected to deliver a message like Amos who was a shepherd out in the fields before he became a prophet. Jonah was a reluctant missionary. Daniel was in a privileged position as the uh, leader in the palace of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar. But the common thread of all of their ministries is that they recognize their responsibility was to hear the word of the Lord and simply deliver it faithfully. That is their only job. So for the next few minutes, we will do a deeper examination of the three most notable prophets we see before Christ. First, we see Moses. Now, Moses was certainly not the first prophet, but Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 reveals to us just how significant his role as prophet was. This is when God rebuked Miriam and Aaron, uh, Moses' brother and sister. And he rebuked them for their desire to have more authority or even equal authority with Moses. And God said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles and he beholds the form of the lord why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant moses now joseph dreamed dreams and isaiah saw visions of god and likewise each of the prophets experienced god in a special way as they heard his voice but there would never be another old testament prophet who had the kind of fellowship with god that is mentioned here in these verses Notice that Moses' primary role was not to foretell future events. In fact, he very rarely told future events. Rather, his responsibility was to reveal God's requirements. Moses spoke to the people <clears throat> the words of God. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. If you've been in our Bible study, we, I think we're on number 27. We just finished it this past Tuesday. 27 hour-plus-long Bible studies in the first 11 chapters, that's just the first 11 chapters of the first single book that has 50 chapters. It is so rich and deep and immense and powerful. And God spoke those words through the pen of Moses as he communicated who he was to his people. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote those books and he was responsible for giving us the entirety of the Jewish law. So understand, this was essentially Israel's unbreakable constitution for 1400 years. This was what governed them. And God verified his message with miraculous signs. Yet even Moses recognized that there was indeed a greater prophet that was coming. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he writes, The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Look, there's going to be a greater prophet who's coming. He'll be like me in some ways, but he'll be better. Well, later on when we get to Hebrews chapter 3, we see that indeed he is the greater servant over the house. Next we consider Elijah. Now, this man was awesome. This man was incredible. We, we don't say much about him this morning. We won't say much about him except we see <clears throat> that he is calling the people of God to repentance. He doesn't give new laws. He just tells people to turn back to the law they already knew, to, to stop worshiping pagan gods. And God gave proof that these words were truly from God when he stopped the rain from heaven and when he sent fire from heaven, among many other miracles. Now, I would like it if you consider Malachi chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, just turn there real quick. It's the last verses of the Old Testament that I want you to see this morning. I want you to see how our Old Testament concludes. In Malachi chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 4 through 6. It says, <clears throat> remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the Old Testament closes with who? It closes with Moses and Elijah. Those are the last few verses of our Old Testament. And the Jews long awaited the return of Elijah. In fact, to this day, if you attend a Passover meal, a Seder meal with a Jewish family, they will leave the door open, and they will set a place at the table, and they will leave an empty chair for Elijah to come. But this brings us now to our final prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. Now, obviously, John the Baptist is not in the pages of our Old Testament, but as the last prophet to take the stage before the ministry of the Messiah, he is indeed the final prophet of the Old Testament era. And he is the fulfillment of the promise that Elijah would return. He himself is the second Elijah. <clears throat> Thank you. Don't take my word for it. Jesus declared this himself. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11, 13 through 15 for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So all those 400 years of waiting between Malachi and Matthew, those 400 years, he he comes down and says, you've been waiting, you've been looking. Now these people who are still putting a chair and leaving the door open for Elijah, they fail to see that that prophet has come, and even one greater than the second Elijah has come. Jesus also said in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. But the reason John was great is not that he exalted himself, but that he diminished himself and elevated Christ. He pointed people to Jesus with his entire life. And that was the goal of the prophet's. So, how does Jesus serve in this role? Well, Jesus was the greater Moses, conversing with God and communing with him. He was the greater Elijah, combating the false teachings that were leading the people astray. And Jesus was superior to John the Baptist in calling people to faith and repentance. Jesus even referred to himself as a prophet on multiple occasions, perhaps most notably when he goes to his hometown in Nazareth and he's communicating with them, he's preaching in the synagogue. And they, they're thinking, well, who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is? They know him. He grew up in that synagogue. He, he was probably teaching his own childhood instructors. And they're not listening. And he said, even a prophet is not heard in his own hometown. Or maybe consider when he sends a message to Herod saying he's not coming back to Jerusalem yet because Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets, thereby referring to himself once again, as a prophet in Luke 13. Jesus displayed his role as a prophet in many ways, partly in foretelling the future. This is something that we see most specifically in the foretelling of his own death. He does that on at least four occasions when he clearly tells his disciples, I'm going to go into Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and I will be crucified, and on the third day I will rise. He also foretold things like the destruction of the temple and his future return. But we especially see the prophetic ministry of Jesus in the way that he spoke for God about what is required of a person. And like I promised, we're only going to peek inside of this door this morning, but the reason this role is so important is that Jesus is the final word on what God demands from the world. Jesus has instituted what Paul would later call the law of Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by our fathers, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the final word from God. So what does that mean for you? Well, earlier I noted that it was never God's practice to speak directly to the entire population from heaven. But there are two occasions when God broke that silence. Once at the baptism of Jesus, God set his seal seal of approval on Jesus to everyone who was present when he said, "'This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased.'" It was the only time in all of human history when all three persons of the Trinity were observable with human senses. Jesus in the water, God verbally communicating from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. And there, what does he say? God declared favor over his son, Jesus Christ. Later in the ministry of Jesus, he took Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain. And there, God revealed the glory of Christ to them. And at that moment, who was there? Elijah and Moses the one representing the law and the one representing the prophets and there on that mountain they were all speaking and in Matthew 17:5 we see that God speaks once again verbally from heaven and he says it says he was still speaking when behold a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him He's not saying ignore Elijah and Moses, but of the three, only one of them is my son, is the son of God, is my chief prophet. It means listen to Jesus, listen to the word of God. Jesus has been very clear about who he is and what he expects from his disciples. And as promised, we're going to dig deeper into this once we get into Isaiah. But for today, I simply want to call on you to never take the commands of Christ lightly. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is our prophet who teaches us how to live. He communicates to us from the Father. In fact, he himself is the greatest expression of what the Father is like. Or as John chapter 1 says it, he exegetes the Father to us. There is much more to be said, but for now let's move on to our next archetype, which is the priest. Whether the prophet's primary goal is to go where the prophet's primary goal is to go to the people on behalf of God, the priest's role is the opposite direction. It's his job to go to God on behalf of the people. The priest would function like a mediator who would sanctify the people, and he would sanctify their offerings so that they would be acceptable before God. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 explains their job this way. It says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That is their job. So, how did the priests operate in the Old Testament? Well, the priests functioned in many ways to teach the people. Now, oftentimes we ignore the teaching element of who they were <clears throat> because we consider that to be mainly the prophets who spoke. The teaching words of Jesus, but also in the the temple and in the tabernacle, it was the priests who were primarily the ones speaking and teaching to the people. And their job was to study and to preserve the word of God and to manage the operations of the tabernacle or the temple. And the priests were supposed to be from the tribe of Levi, who remember, they did not inherit any land. When at the end of Joshua, they're distributing all the land. Harry, you get this land and you get that land. Well, Levi, guess what you get? you get something better. You get to live in the temple. You get to live in the tabernacle. And your inheritance is to serve at the foot of God. You get to lead the people in sacrificial worship to God. And that's way better. And why not? Why didn't they not receive any any land? Because they were given a greater reward of being able to carry out the worship ministries of God. So chief among their responsibilities was the command to offer up sacrifices. And there were many sacrifices that were given for a plethora of reasons. But right now, we're just going to zoom in on one of them. In Leviticus 16, it gives us a very thorough explanation of exactly what was to take place on the most holy day of the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement, or as you probably hear it when you get days off of school for your family, it's Yom Kippur. On that day, there was something very significant that was supposed to take place. It was the most important day that they had every year. And what you need to understand is why these sacrifices on that holy day were being done. Leviticus 16.34 says, And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So the sacrifices of these animals was supposed to play a role in the atonement, right? It's supposed to cover up or take away or remove sin, right? Well, the short answer is technically that is what it's saying. But if you dig a little deeper, the longer answer is that the blood of these animals was never able to take away sin. In fact, in the very next chapter, God says that these are just an illustration of what he himself is going to do, in sacrificing for the people. Consider Leviticus 17:11 where it says, "For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life." God is telling them that true atonement would never be made by their sacrifices for themselves. He says, "I have made a sacrifice for you, And that sacrifice would not come until Jesus was at the cross. But that sacrifice was one that every time they killed a lamb, they were pointing forward to the promise of what Jesus would do at Calvary. God would sacri- sacrifice and offer up his own blood sacrifice, his own son. That would be the only effective agent of atonement for his people. That's the role of a priest. Which brings us to our next question. <clears throat> How did Jesus serve as a priest. Well, if you read through the Gospels, they consistently take the perspective as Jesus being the sacrifice for our sins. Perhaps this is presented most clearly at the end of the book of John chapter 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming over that hill in John 129. And what does he say? He says, behold, everyone stop looking at me. Look over there. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's talking to Jewish people. There's only one kind of lamb that's known to take away sin. That is the atonement sacrifice from the day of atonement. And he says, no, all of those sacrifices you guys have been making, that's not the one that takes away the sin. That guy is the one who will take away the sin of the world. That was not some random statement. He was foretelling Jesus being the sacrifice offered on the altar. And that's how atonement or taking away of sin works. So we normally see Jesus presented in this light of being a willing, pure, spotless, holy sacrifice given for his people. However, the book of Hebrews presents us with a much broader image. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now just to be clear, when he says he's passed through the heavens, he's contrasting that with those priests, the high priests on earth who would pass through a curtain to go into the Holy of Holies. He says Jesus passed through the heavens to go to the real heavenly presence of God. And the bulk of the argument in the book of Hebrews is to show us how Jesus is the great high priest, superior to all other priests. So to summarize, he is greater because he's not a sinner and therefore does not sacrifice for his own own sins, but for the sins of others. And his sacrifice is a permanent sacrifice and does not have to be done repeatedly, like the sacrifices of the Old Testament priesthood. And his sacrifice was effective because it actually took away sins. His priestly intercession is greater because he is in perfect union with the Father. And his perfect sacrifice is better because he humbly offered himself. His priestly ministry is superior because. He does not serve in the earthly temple, which the book of Hebrews calls a shadow of heavenly realities. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Can there be any doubt that Jesus is better? He is the true and only high priest of our faith. And not only that, not only is he the sacrifice, But in Hebrews, it teaches us that Jesus was not only the lamb that was sacrificed. He is also the priest who carried that sacrifice to the altar to be laid down. And Jesus Christ is the one who gave up his own life. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down for the sheep. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. So we come to our final question of this section. What does this mean for you? And I'm actually going to allow the author of Hebrews to answer that question. From the middle of Hebrews chapter 4 to the end of Hebrews chapter 10, he is attempting to prove the value of Jesus as our great high priest. And once he has done so sufficiently and exhaustively, he declares these words at the end of that argument in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers... for he who promised is faithful. We can hold on to this hope because we have a great high priest who has bought our liberty. So now we come to the final archetype of the day, the king. Now we all know what a king is, but what is the biblical role of a king? A king's role was to lead people in covenant faithfulness before God. He was to lead by guiding people in righteousness And by protecting them from danger, both from the outside, from enemies, and from the inside, from their own foolishness. So how do we see this archetype displayed in the Old Testament? Well, as promised, uh, we're going to consider this from the Old Testament first. Let's jump way back to the beginning of the earth. Let's go way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam was a king there in Genesis. And before creating man, the dialogue within the Godhead was that they would make man in God's own image. And what were they going to do? To give him dominion over all of the rest of creation. Dominion is a kingly word. It is representative of authority. And after God made Adam and Eve, it says in Genesis 1:28, God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So Adam and Eve were like viceroys of God. They were set over all creation to care for it and to fill it and to subdue it. Yet, at the very first test, Adam failed. He failed to be a good king. He failed to lead. He failed to protect. He failed to keep the outside enemies out and the inside enemy of Eve away as well. The serpent came into the garden and began to test Eve. Do not miss that tiny but important line in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when it says, She took the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Adam was right there. It was his duty to be a guardian, to be a protector, to be a leader, to destroy that snake. Yet he stood at that tree, and he acquiesced he let an invader come in. He let an invader lie to his wife and convince them both to dishonor God. That was a long period of time before God raised up a king who would operate over God's people. But nearly 400 years before King Saul was ever a king, we see that God gave some instructions about what a king is supposed to do. There's not much that he instructed, but here's the bulk of it found in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. It says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom... He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom." he and his children in Israel. The role of the king is to know and to love and to fear God. And this is what causes a king to humbly serve his kingdom rather than pridefully ruling with an iron fist and seeking to serve himself. Of course, you've probably heard many times the famous quote by Lord Acton, the British politician, who famously said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But the po- But the Bible shows that a true king is never supposed to see himself as powerful. But they are to see God as powerful. This is why David is such a good example as king. Because while Saul was glorying in his crown, he was also trembling to fight Goliath. But David could fearlessly walk out and he could knock down that giant with a single stone because he realized the battle does not belong to me. The battle belongs to the Lord. And when David failed, or any Old Testament king failed for that matter, was when they began to trust in themselves. They thought more highly of themselves than they should, and it resulted in deep sorrow for themselves and for the people. Of the 41 total kings that ruled over the United Kingdom, and then after splitting the Southern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom, there were 41 total, and of them, there are only six of them that the Bible ever speaks positively about in any way. Of the rest, there were those that were murderers of the prophets. There were those who killed the worshipers of Jehovah. There were even those who sacrificed their own children on pagan altars. The kings of Israel are often spoken about with this specific term. It's something we see all throughout Scripture, but I think most after we see David, this is very common, they're called shepherds. People who are supposed to guard the flock of Israel. <clears throat> and the parallels of leading and shepherding a flock are very consistent throughout the prophets, the books of the prophets. But the shepherd or the king of Israel, they often failed in their responsibilities. The clearest example of this comes from Ezekiel chapter 40, 34, when God opposes the kings with an extensive diatribe. After excoriating them for their selfishness and their pride, God says in verses 10 through 11, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep on the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep." And I will seek them out. They were not leading. They were feeding on the flock. They were not protecting the people. They were lining their pockets. But God promised that a greater king was coming. And part of the reason the people in the time of Christ were looking for a conquering king is that so many prophecies of the Messiah were about his kingly authority and about his power. That he would rule with divine wisdom and divine authority. So how does Jesus fulfill the role Of king this is a big question because he is not like any other king that's ever lived before or since he led by humble example he has never called his people to do anything that he did not go through himself he did not come to be rich or to be served but he gave up the riches of heaven to come and serve us he did not ride into Jerusalem on a mighty steed but on a lowly donkey He did not demand the best the world has to offer, but said that foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But he did not have indentured servants, but eager disciples. He was truly a king, unlike any other. In fact, the entire book of Matthew is written as a presentation of Jesus as the king. We will cover this aspect of kingliness more in Isaiah, but for now... The main thing that I want you to see is that the whole book of Matthew is really about Jesus as being the king, which is why it concludes that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the very last thing that he said to the people before sending them out at the very end of Matthew's gospel. And everything between the beginning of the Bible and Matthew's declaration of Christ's authority reveals the character and the command of a true king. Forty-one times, just in Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks of the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus displays his kingly authority over the people, and over sin, and over sickness, and even over Satan. And in Matthew twenty-seven eleven, Jesus was directly asked, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, I am. This is why they crucified him underneath a sign that said, the king of the Jews. So to close our time together today, we're actually going to finish at the end of the book. We're going to finish in Revelation. At the end of all things, Jesus, seated on the throne with his Father, ruling over the expanse of the universe, Revelation 22, 1-5. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So what does this have to do with you? Well, Jesus has come to be the true king to lead his people in covenant righteousness. So I have two final words today for you. First, if you're not a Christian, then you are not currently able to receive any of the blessings of the kingdom of God. And you are, in fact, still an enemy of King Jesus. And he has shown mercy to you by allowing you to continue on in your rebellion without destroying you. But he will by no means clear the guilty. At one tree, Adam failed as king, he handed over dominion to the devil, and when he did, you and I were condemned with him. But the good news is this, that Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam, went to a tree and he restored all that was lost. And there at the cross, he crushed the head of the serpent. As it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was there for sinners, destroyed in his body for us. If you are not saved, then you are in a precarious position. But I want you to know that God has provided a way for you to be made a citizen of the kingdom of God. He has made a way for you to be a child of God. He has made a way for adoption as sons and daughters. And there's nothing that you and I can do to earn that or buy it. You must simply believe it. Trust that Jesus died for you. And trust that Jesus bought you with his own blood. And you will be saved. Now lastly, to those who do know Christ... I want you to see that Jesus is your king, leading you in covenant faithfulness before the Father. And I call on you, those who have been redeemed, those who have been restored and renewed by his grace, do not live as though you are the king or queen of your own domain. Instead, recognize that you have no authority of yourself. You have no life in and of yourself. That You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And that now the life that you live is to be lived in His service. So let's love this Father. Let's love this Christ who is our prophet and priest and king. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do thank you for this incredible Bible-sweeping, long form picture of your grace that you reveal to us that you are so good to send a prophet like Jesus, to send us a priest like Jesus, to send us a king like Jesus. We pray that we would love him and worship him well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.